Tonight, if you turn your Bibles again to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, we'll pick up in the fifth verse. And we're going to just take through verse 8 in a study that is best described by verse 5, the very first part of it, the faithful witness. As we have seen thus far, this book is a book about Jesus Christ. And now as we take these next several verses, we're going to see these amazing attributes, these characteristics of our Savior. They'll be followed by the characteristics of the church in the church age next week. But tonight, this amazing picture of Jesus and He as our faithful witness. And here in this particular part of this first chapter lies some of the secret to the content that's going to follow Because if Jesus is not these things described here in the first part of this chapter, uh, then he's not Savior. He's not God. He is completely unable, like everyone else in the world would be unable to save us if he is not God. And so we believe that he is God, and because he is God, uh, that he has the ability to do exactly Uh, what this passage is going to tell us he can do. And so as we look at this particular passage and as we begin to ponder it, uh, we're going to see that the Lord is some very, very, very wonderful and very specific things. It begins with a very simple statement there in verse 5, and it says, and from Jesus Christ. So it's referring back uh, to, to who this letter is from, and then it's going to go on to describe exactly who he is. And so tonight, a faithful witness, and would you pray with me? Father God, we ask tonight that you would move in this place and speak to us by the power of your word. Lord, we're so grateful for the work that was accomplished on the cross, that Lord, by you and through you alone, we'll have access one day to the heavens. Lord, it will be brought near to you in heaven that we'll have that glorious life that we look forward to. Lord, as we struggle on this earth, Lord, it makes us long all the more for the precious promises that you've given us in your word. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us tonight. Bless us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 5, and I want to take all these verses together, all four verses. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. For behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. You're going to notice that what's being said here 
is not attributable to any other person on the face of the earth. And notice verse 8, and it finishes up this continuing message. And so it says, it's from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over all the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, washed us, washed us in his own blood, is what it said, and made us priests and kings. And it goes on to describe that one day every eye will see him. Uh, that's everybody on the face of the earth. And right now that's not true, but it will happen one day. And so it begins, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Repeats it in yet a different form. The beginning and the end, says the Lord. And if you didn't get that, who was? Past tense. Who is? Present tense. And who is to come? And then he finished it off, finishes it off by saying, the Almighty. So if you had any doubt who Jesus Christ is, these few verses fully explain the totality of the character, the nature, the work, and the person of Jesus Christ. And so they are as impactful and as in-depth as you can possibly get. And notice it begins from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This verse 5 actually transports us to the third from. There have been two of them so far. This word that has come has come from God the Father and from the Holy Spirit. And now it's from Jesus Christ. And so you see the full work of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit in what's being spoken to us through the book of Revelation. It's very important to remember that because many people try and pull apart the Godhead by saying Jesus Christ alone is responsible for this. And in some senses of the way Scripture fills us in on heavenly details, that is partially true. But Jesus Christ is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. And God the Father is fully God. They are all God. None of them are any less than God. So there's nothing that the Holy Spirit is that Jesus Christ is not. There is nothing that God the Father is that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are not. They are all one in that sense. It is the work of all three persons of the Godhead uh, that this book describes for us. And so Jesus Christ here uh, is the third source of that grace and peace. And remember that you cannot have the peace of God without the grace of God. So the finished work of the cross is purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit, and was the plan of God. All three had a part in it, and all three are complete in it. And so we have this amazing picture now of a single person uh, of the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself. And so you'll notice also that in this, uh, in those first two, naming God the Father and God the Spirit, there's a little bit of figurative language that's used in the first four verses. But here Jesus is named outright, Jesus Christ. God who is salvation, Yahushua, Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So Jesus Christ is the focus of everything that follows from here on out. I want to give you several things that we can look at from this passage tonight. We're going to look at them one at a time, but here they are. 
You're going to see three things about his person, that he is the faithful witness, that he is the firstborn and the first begotten of the dead, that he is the prince of the kings of the earth, and then three things about his work. And it's very important that we get all these things, because you cannot emit any of them, and he will still be the Savior. He cannot be Lord if all of these things are not contained within the work and the person of Jesus Christ, who loved us. If God didn't love us, where would we be? If Jesus didn't love you, where would we be? If he does not wash you, where would we be? And if he has not made you into one of his children, where would we be? And so it's very important that as we look at these verses tonight, we get these pictures of his person and of his work. And so we look at his person. Notice the first thing we see, number one, is that he is the faithful witness. The word faithful here simply means trustworthy. Very important that Jesus Christ is trustworthy. Can you imagine if, like Allah, Jesus were capricious? You know, he wakes up and he has a bad day. Something goes on in heaven. You know, Satan actually happens to be rumbling around somewhere, seeking whom he might devour. Maybe he comes uh, after you like he did after Job. And Jesus is like, I'm just tired of this guy being here. And he has a bad day. And he, he does not have the same character yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is perfectly faithful. He is absolutely reliable. He is a true representation 100% of the time of the Godhead. He will never be less than God. He's absolutely faithful. It's really, really important because if his character ever changes even the slightest bit, maybe you happen to be the one that met him on the day when he was having a bad day. He is the faithful witness of what he himself did on Calvary's cross. We depend on him in such a way that it inspires our trust in God. I'm depending on Jesus Christ to get to heaven. Amen? We were kind of joking in the lobby before a service. Rick was saying he wanted to be the first one. I said, go away. Go ahead. You be the first one into heaven as long as I get there. I don't care when I get there, as long as I get there. He is faithful in that sense. I'm trusting him. I'm not trusting the order of man. I'm not trusting some doctrinal issue that was decided by a bunch of people. I am trusting Jesus Christ for my salvation. And he's absolutely trustworthy. He is the one who testifies of the fullness of everything that God is in our lives. When he went to the cross, when he said it is finished, he meant finished. Not kind of, sort of done, and maybe if you do it right yourself, you can tap into my kind of, sort of goodness or the image that I have, or like a Christian scientist would tell you that he's kind of a representation or an ideal about God. No, he is God, and he's fully trustworthy as God. He's not going to lead you astray. He's going to deliver the message as it actually is, and what he delivers you can trust. So he is the faithful witness. Remember that John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. Period. And then it goes on to say, The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So when you see Jesus, you see God. But you haven't seen God the Father. You've seen Jesus the Son, but in seeing Jesus, you've seen God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. He's perfect. He was wrapped in human flesh while he was here, but he was no less than God. 
absolutely trustworthy and faithful. And the way this gets applied to our lives, and, and, and it can't be uh, mistaken here, there's nothing that Jesus has ever said that was overstated or understated. When he said, I am the only way and the only truth and the only life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said that, that was not an overestimation of who he was. Nor was it said, woman, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. Was that an underestimation of his hatred towards sin, but love for people? He's perfect. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. And he delivers the message that we must hear, so Jesus will never fail you. People fail us, amen? I don't know if you've ever been failed by people. If you haven't, you will. I'll, I'll, I'll just step in and do it right now and save you a lot of trouble and time. People will fail you, but Christ will never fail you. The second thing about his person, again, so important, he is the firstborn, the first begotten of the dead. Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead permanently. Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? But he was just a resuscitated dude. He was raised from the dead to die again. What a bummer to have to die twice. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was raised unto a life that he turned around and then died again. Jesus was the firstborn raised from the dead permanently unto everlasting life. Eternal life. Never, ever, ever will you have to worry about that. He secured, in other words, our eternity. That's when Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, 6, one of the characteristics of the Messiah who would come, he would be the father of eternity. That word in the Hebrew translated father means progenitor. It means originator, the one from whom it came. Jesus Christ would be the originator of eternal life. Without Him, there is no eternal life. And so He is a faithful witness to the things of God. And so when you see Jesus' work in our lives, He's not just a resuscitated Christ. He wasn't somebody like many people believe, skeptics believe. Well, maybe if He was raised up, maybe He wasn't actually dead. Well, a professional Roman murderer put a spear in his side just to make sure. He was dead. Very dead. And in fact, the reason they didn't break his legs is because he was dead. And now he's alive. And has always been alive since the day he rose from the tomb. Never more to die again. Jesus, in essence, is the father of immortality. Father of eternity. First Timothy chapter 6 says it this way. Wonderful passage of scripture. And it's, it's really referring to that Isaiah 9, 6 passage, but in the New Testament. And it speaks of Jesus. It says, which he made manifest in his own time, speaking about eternal life. He who is the blessed and only potentate. Now when we think of a potentate, we kind of think of the Pope. In other words, someone who represents in its fullness. If you talk about the number one person in the Catholic Church, it's the Pope. The Pope, we call him the Pope. But potentate is actually a better word for him. He's the top dog. 
Jesus is the top dog when it comes to eternal life. He's the first one. It goes on to say that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy there in 1 Timothy 6. Dwelling in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. You see, when you think of Jesus, and you think of his role, he is the very first of the same people that we now are because of him. He went as a forerunner. He provided the way for us to go. And that's why he said, remember, he said, I'm the way. Remember when the disciples were asking him? And he said, no, the way you know. You know who he's talking about? Himself. You know the way. You know me. He is the first begotten. It also, in the the word that's, that's used there, First is not just first uh, as in what we would call order. In other words, it's not just numerical order, but also in status. He is not just the first as in number one, but he is also the highest of the order. In other words, he is the, the prince, the king. He's the top. There is nobody above him. In our governmental system, uh, we have a president. That president is the highest official in our land. Jesus is basically the president of salvation. There is nobody above him. He alone can act. He alone does. He alone has provided for. So he is the first of all. In Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, it's a passage you've probably all read, but it says there in verse 15 and 16, for he is the invisible, he is the image of the invisible God. And it goes on to say the firstborn over all creation over absolutely all creation. There's nobody above him. For by him all things that were created are in heaven, that were on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things that were created through him and for him. He's one of one. We use the term preeminent one. In other words, the first of the kind and also the top of the kind. That's who Jesus is. He's the firstborn or first begotten. And notice the things that he does. He's the first in position over creation. Amen. He is the first in position over the resurrection. Amen. He's the one that made it possible for all of us. And he is the first one over the church because he is the very first member. Because we are the resurrected ones. Amen. One day we're all going to see resurrection. Whether it happens through the rapture or whether it happens one at a time and we go to heaven and you're with the Lord and you come back with Him in the clouds, you're still going to go to heaven because of Him. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. You get it? The many brethren is us. The firstborn of the many brethren. In other words, he is the one that we... That's why we're called Christians, by the way. It means little Christ, basically. It means we're the image, the spitting image of Jesus who is the Christ. That's what we're supposed to be. The third characteristic of his person here found in this, in verse 5, that he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. Did you know that Jesus is actually the king of the world? He is. Jesus Christ is the king of the world. He has right now allowed his kingdom uh, to be ruled over, in essence, by man. 
Satan has dominion in a spiritual sense, but man really is in control of this earth to some degree. Jesus is still sovereign. He's the king of the earth. This is his planet. It belongs to him. And as we're going to see at the end of tonight's study, he's coming back one day to take back his planet and his people and to deal with the way things are on this earth. Because we haven't done a great job of managing his earth for him. Amen? We think we have. But Jesus is the real king. All world rulers, the book of Romans says, derive their power from him. There is no authority given to man but that which has been ordained of God. In other words, God is the one who raises people up and brings them down. He allows things to happen we don't understand. But he is actually the true ruler. And so he's the prince of the kings of the earth. Political leaders in our day and time, it's kind of crazy how they talk, isn't it? It's like, well, I'm this and I'm that. and It is, it is crazy. Can you imagine one day when they actually meet Jesus, what they're going to be doing is what everybody else is going to be doing. I am nothing. I'm dust. They're going to bury their face in the dirt and go, man, how did I ever think I was something? Because you are the real king. He's the prince of peace. You know, the devil and his minions have exhorted, extorted the earth, in essence, and, and exercised some authority over it. But God has given, according to Acts chapter 5, Jesus exalted him to the right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and to give forgiveness of sins. It's only Jesus fills that role. And so when we think about him, we have to remember these things. You know, as the, as the Apostle Paul made known to us, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he was saying when he said that was reminding us there's a little more than just mentioning the name of Jesus to being saved. Matter of fact, there's a lot more to than mentioning the name of Jesus to be saved. Now, it is as simple as believing, but you have to believe in the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is the faithful witness. The real Jesus is the firstborn and only begotten of the dead. The real Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. The real Jesus paid for your sins on Calvary's cross. The real Jesus is the one who's remitted your sin. The real Jesus is the one who's made you into a child of God. It's not some word. It's a person. And that person is being made known to us in this chapter, in these verses. One day, Jesus is going to put his feet back down on the Mount of Olives and he's going to actually rule as he should. He's going to be here with us. It's going to be a glorious day. This world is his. Make no mistake about it. As much as man might scream and shout and Vladimir Putin might say, you know, I'm the czar of the world or our president might say I'm the most powerful person on the planet. Uh, that that's, might be true today, <laughs> but it won't be true when Jesus comes. We'll all take a rightful place. You see, he's the one that's going to overturn the nature of man because the nature of man is inherently prideful. And we think we have it all together. We don't have it all together, but Jesus does have it all together. The next three things all pertain to his work. Notice them. To him who loved us. 
You realize that's the entire motivation for everything that's in your Bible? If you boiled everything down to one thing, it's because God loves us. Jesus loves us. The Holy Spirit loves us. But very specifically, Jesus loved us, loved us enough to die for us. That's how much he loves us. So when it says to him who loved us, Jesus' sole motivation is love. You know, I used to think, and I'll just be honest with you, I thought initially that God's motivation was because he was holy. I really did. I believed that God's motivation was he was holy, and his whole desire was to make me holy. I didn't know that God loved me. Matter of fact, I was actually a little bit afraid of God. And then I got really afraid of God. Then after a while I realized, well, if everybody was afraid of him, no one would ever come to him. We'd all be running away. You know, like your kids do when they've done something wrong. They're kind of hard to find, aren't they? They're like, you know, where did you go? Where are you? You find them underneath the bed someplace. They're just like, oh, well, I didn't mean to do it. He's not motivated by fear. He's motivated by love. He needed to free us from our sins before he could express that love. So the second component here is part of the first. He's made us. It's crazy that what we need, he made us. You see, we live in a world that says you need to earn whatever you get, right? If you're a parent, it's a good thing to make your children earn what comes into their life to teach them thrift and good work habits and all those things. We have been prepped by the world to believe that everything we have, we got because we basically deserve it, right? And if you don't get something that you deserve, then you turn into a whiner. You're like, huh, I can't believe it. Everybody else has that. I don't have that. If you don't believe that, all you got to do is look at what's on the news. You know, anybody that thinks that somebody that works at McDonald's deserves $15 an hour has a screw loose. You have a screw loose in your head. It's, that is not a fair wage for flipping a burger unless you want the burger to cost 7 or $8. And yet everybody thinks that they're entitled to something. There's only one sense that that's true. We are entitled to something. That's hell. That's what we're entitled to. That's what your good works would get you without Jesus. Hell. Because all of your works are as filthy rags. That's what Scripture plainly states. You wouldn't, so he made us what we need. We need his love. We need his forgiveness. He made us acceptable as the beloved. We didn't make ourselves that way. I didn't become saved because I all of a sudden went to you know some school of theology. Wow, I know how to be saved now. I went out and did step 4 through 18. Those are the ones that actually saved you, and I did those, and now I'm saved. No, Jesus Christ made me into who I am. And if he didn't do that, I would be lost forever. So it says he made us. We don't have any good thing. We wouldn't be good priests and kings. Notice what it says. He's made us into priests and kings. You see, he's loved us. And I want you to notice something there. That word loved in the original language is in the present perfect tense. Right now, today, Jesus loves us. Perfectly. Without any reservation. Now think about who you are. I'll think about who I am. That is crazy. That's absolutely nutty when I think about it. It's like, love me? I know me. You know you. I'm not worthy of a perfect God. 
loving me with perfect love? It's because I can't earn it. He had to make us that way. And he did that by cleansing our sin problem. Jesus is going to love you from day one to the very end. He isn't going to stop loving you. That's why his word says that no one can snatch them out of my hands who are mine. He loves you perfectly. And he made you able to be loved. And that love, frankly, is not fathomable to us. When I think of God's love, it just—it goes past my mental capacity to even ponder. Because well, I know me and you know you. And when you think of who Jesus is, you know, we're going to be looking at the cross here really soon. And my intent is to make it as real as I possibly can for you. When you think of what Jesus endured on the cross and to think that he did that for you, that God turned his back on his only son for you, that if you had been the only person on the face of the earth, he still would have done it anyway. He didn't do it for a group. He did it for us one at a time. Knowing you, counting the hairs on your head, knowing your days from old, ordaining your days before you were ever born so that you would walk in them, as Ephesians tells us. Knowing exactly how rotten and horrible you would be. Me too. He loved us anyway. Endlessly loves us. From day one till now. That love is that perfect example that we're supposed to model, guys, as husbands. And husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how is it expressed? He gave his life for it. It's real love. That's why Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friend. What he actually meant was for anybody. Notice the final thing in this work, and it's the most important thing really in that sense, because of the works of God, the one thing that has to happen for us to ever get through heaven's door or gate or tunnel or passageway or through the cloud or whatever it is, okay? When people talk about heaven, we haven't got a clue what it looks like up there. You know, the the paintings that we've seen throughout time of the pearly gates and Peter standing there and angels with a harp, we're going to be so blown away when we get to heaven we aren't going to know what it is. But whatever it is that gets you through that entrance into heaven, I can tell you this, you aren't going through the door without every single sin you have ever committed and will ever commit completely erased so that they are no longer visible. Hallelujah. Think about it. You can't take one, not one little lie, not one little bad attitude, not one tidbit of bitterness. There can't be anything not perfect when you get to heaven. Washed us. Not just of the old stuff, of the stuff today and the stuff tomorrow and the stuff that you will commit maybe on your dying day or when you're, you're being raptured and all of a sudden you forget that you're going to heaven and you say something you shouldn't say. <laughs> so what's going to happen to me and Rick? We're going to be arguing over who's going first. We're going to be standing there and, no, I'm going first. So pride will come into my life right at the very end. 
And Jesus is like, well, got to erase that. I'm going to be going up and he's going to be working on erasing something. He's like, you know, I, I got to admit, I kind of like some of the infomercials. He's like OxyClean for the soul. You know, it's just like, pull the heart open. You know, you can do the red wine stain in the carpet. Like, imagine you. You think, you think your dogs can get the carpet dirty. What about your life? Think about the moment that you take your last breath. You're going to need some cleansing on the way up. I know I am. I'll be thinking something dumb, I'm sure. I want to ask you a question. Has it dawned on you exactly how wretched you actually are? Has it dawned on you how wretched you really are? Ever pondered that? Not just what you used to be, because we all were has-beens, right? We're supposed to be lousy sinners. We're not supposed to be good at it anymore. But we're still sinners, amen? What a wonderful thing that God's gospel is the good news that says every single sin will be made white as well by the blood of Christ. Every last one. Past, present, future. Is anybody that thinks that you're perfect while you're here on this earth, we need to talk after service. It ain't happening. I've hung around with some of the biggest names in Christendom in our world today, and I can tell you they're still sinful. I've watched pastors going to conferences fighting over who was going to get in the taxi to go to the airport because they thought they should go first. It's crazy. Oh, I gotta go, you know, my plane well, my plane's late too, you know, we're not gonna make it. You see, we don't have to go through religious rites, religious rituals to receive forgiveness. We have to go under the blood of Christ. That's it. That's it. God doesn't ask us to suffer for our sin. Aren't you glad of that one? He suffered for us so we wouldn't have to suffer ourselves. That's why I feel so sorry for people like they they need to beat themselves for the, the sin that's in their life. God wants you to repent. He doesn't want you to do it. He doesn't want you to repeat it. But he's not asking you to pay for it. Christ paid for it. It's already done. It's over. All you have to do is ask. All the penance that ever needs to be done. That's why I feel so so bad for so many Catholics that think they're going to spend 2,000 years in purgatory paying for their own wretchedness. I'm telling you, if that's the case, there's going to be nobody in heaven and everybody in purgatory. We're all going to be down there. The good news is that isn't even what the Scriptures declare. He who the Son has made free is free indeed. Absolutely with authority indeed. First John chapter 2 says, I write to you little children. And John was making it known exactly what we should know. Because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Amen? That's the work. He washed us. You can't have perfection in yourself. 
you know, people like that. You know, some people that actually kind of find some perverse joy in thinking that they, you know, they made it themselves. With regard to righteousness, that is a feeble, impossible effort that you're undertaking. You won't get there. It's not going to happen. Because the very fact that you take some pride in it is sin. It is. You realize that the number one sin of Satan is pride. That's really what he fell for. If you want to look at it, he had eye disease. I will do this. I will do that. I will be like this. I will be like that. I will exalt my my throne above the, the heavens. It's pride. How many people are infected today with pride? At times I am. Maybe you guys are all perfect, but I'll just tell you straight up, I have pride every once in a while. And it's almost always not the right kind of pride. I'm not talking about that looking at something that's happened in someone's life and going, man, I'm just so grateful for that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that that takes the glory of God. Every once in a while, you get that little look on your face. It's a prideful look. It's an arrogant look. It's in your heart. You don't even say it, but it's there. The Old Testament, God covered the sin by atonement. Look at If you look at the Old Testament feasts and we have, and you look at Yom Kippur and imagine the Jewish people going to the temple once a year, what did they do the other 364 days of the year? You ever thought about that? Because by Jewish law, Jewish liter- literally, the Jews were literally only cleansed on one day of the year. And they no more than walked out that multicolored gate into the temple courtyard, and they already had something on their plate. You know, maybe it was only two. But had they died at that point in time without the mercy of God, and without the grace of God, fortunately he looked at it and accounted it to him as righteousness. They were trying to do the right thing. But can you imagine if everything were conditioned on you staying clean once you got clean? Oh, my goodness gracious. Every time I fish, I sin. I'm trying to figure out other people's baits, and it's just like, Lord, I am coveting that trout over there. I can't even recreate without sinning sometimes. I look at other people's dogs. Their dogs are good. How come mine don't do that? why Jesus said for this blood is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of sin Romans 5 much more than having now been justified by his blood shall we be saved from wrath through him it's what you're saved from is the wrath of God by his blood not because you're good not because you went to class and you learned how to be a good Christian because none of you are good Christians in that sense Make sure you understand what I'm saying here. You're not good compared to God. Amen? I'm not. I'll tell you straight up. I'm not. Compare me to Jesus? Ooh. Bad deal. Jesus forgave us so we could have eternal life. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? That's why Psalm 103 is so wonderful. As far as the east is from the west, has he removed our transgressions from us? Think about that in a rational sense. How far is the east from the west? They're opposite directions. So if you're going east from west, it's infinite. You can never get back to point A. 
It's the picture that's being made there. Isaiah actually said in Isaiah 38, beautiful picture. You know, you, you sit there and you think about how God sees these things. Think about this one. For indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. That's how Isaiah saw it. Saw it. Can't see them. They're no longer visible. Every last one of them. This begins kind of the doxology here in, in this particular passage. And doxology is an easy thing for you to remember. It's just a hymn of praise. It begins now to praise the Lord as we wrap this up tonight. And it's a beautiful hymn of praise because when you think about who God is, when you think about what we just, His, his person and His work, the things that Christ has done for us, how can we not praise Him? He's made us kings and priests. Think about it. He did all the work. He erased our sins. He made us able to go to heaven. He went to death himself first to do that. He shed his blood to do that. And then he makes us priests and kings. That's craziness, talking. It's like, seriously? Yes. Because he loves us that much. Priests and kings, that's who you are to God the Father. That's what this passage says in verse 6. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. That's why it says amen. It means so be it. You guys know that, right? Amen means so be it. You're testifying that what has previously been said is true. Yes, I believe that. Amen. He has made us. I didn't make myself. I wasn't in the right place at the right time. I didn't, you know, somehow come to some epiphany. Wow, awesome. Now I'm a priest and a king. He made me a priest and king. Interesting, because priests can offer sacrifices to God and offer worship to God. Amen? And kings have the right to rule. And if Jesus is the ruler, we rule alongside of him. Jesus actually lets you co-rule in his kingdom. Isn't that nuts? Think about it. Most of us don't rule our houses very well. And yet he's going to allow us as his priests and kings one day, especially during the millennial reign, we're coming back for that express purpose, to rule and reign with him. You're going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus. As kings, queens, if you like. I haven't quite ever figured out if we're all going to be kings or if we're going to be kings and queens or whatever. But I know what it says here in general to, to all of us. You're going to rule with Jesus one day. That just boggles my mind. No wonder it says amen twice in these few verses. Yes, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You get a little Southern Baptist when you read this passage. So you're going to start jumping up and down, doing a little sweat and getting my towel out. It's like, whoo. But we're also going to engage in those things which priests engage in. They share the word with other people. They witness of the Lord. It's what we're here for. It's what we're supposed to be doing. So he alone has that dominion. He alone has that glory. And we're going to bear witness to that. You know, when you're a citizen of the United States and you go, you know, you're traveling overseas, you go to, don't you love those, those passport lines that say U.S. citizens only? I love those things. Because you look over at the foreigner lines, and there's like 8 million people in them. You ever been to LAX? 
If you go to LAX and you go to the passport control area, that's what it's called, and there are all the people coming from the other countries, and they're lined up completely out of the airport, out onto the runway. They're still in the plane. There's so many people. And then you come to the U.S. citizens only, and you take out your passport, and they're really nice to you, and they're speaking, Welcome back, Mr. Gill. And I'm like, Yes, I'm home! And I look at those poor guys. Zimbabwe. Oh, that's bad. (laughs) You are a citizen of heaven who is a ruler. You would actually get to use the privileged gates that are for those who are of the ruling classes of of our country. You, You would go in the same line as the Secretary of State and the President into heaven because you're a priest you're a king and he is that forever and ever and ever there's no time requirement on it. if you look at your passport it has a stamp on there it has an expiration date right I made the mistake of being in Brazil one time within two weeks of my expiration date and I didn't actually even think about it and I got down there and I go man if anything happens and I'm here two extra days I'm a dead man because my passport's going to expire, and I'm going to be in a foreign country, 6,000 miles from home, and I'm not going to be able to prove who I am, because they aren't going to believe it, because the date's wrong on the stupid passport. Your passport to heaven's never going to expire. Ever. It's permanent. You're a citizen of heaven. You have the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why the shout of glory is, is here, and the shout of Amen. Now I want you to notice that it goes on, kind of to put it in a perspective for us. Are are we really acting like the priests and kings that we are? You see, he describes himself. He shows us all these things that are going on. Uh, He's going to now go on to tell us that, that these things speak to the nation Israel, and they speak to all of creation, to all of eternity. This isn't just stuff that applies to just the church. You know, the things of Christ are permanent yes and amen for everybody, whether they believe it or not. That's the sad part about people who don't trust Christ. Whether they see it or not, it's true. That's why we have such compassion for the Jewish people, because he came to them first, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. They have yet to, to recognize Jesus as Messiah, but he nonetheless is Messiah. There isn't going to be another one. He's the only one. And so he now goes on and says, Behold, for he is coming in verse 7 with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. You see the picture, the reference to the Jewish people. Uh, that's a picture of the, of the Jewish people. They're the ones that are, in, in that sense, responsible. Were it not for Annas and Caiaphas, if it weren't for the Sanhedrin, Jesus would have never gone to Pilate for the trial as far as Scripture tells us what was going on. We, of course, know behind the scenes it was the foreordained plan of God. But it was, in fact, the Jewish people, they believed they were responsible for killing Jesus. Annas and Caiaphas were jumping up and down. We did it. He's dead. The Jewish people were shouting, give us Barabbas. We don't want this guy to rule over us. We don't. If that's the Messiah, we don't want him. One day they're going to see Jesus for who he is. And they're going to see him like you and I see him. As king, as lord, as savior, as the only way to be right with God.
Right now, they're still hoping that they get to rebuild the temple, and they will be able to do that under the Antichrist. They're hoping right now that they'll be able to offer sacrifices, and they will be able to do that under the, under the rule of the Antichrist. And in the middle of the week, just as Daniel says, he's going to break that covenant with them. And they're going to be stopped from doing that. And then I go, what happened? After three and a half years of terror, Jesus is coming back in the clouds, folks, with you and me. And they're going to see him who they pierced. This is speaking specifically of the second coming of the Lord. That's why it says, behold. It's, it's shouting it out. That's one of those things. You know, it's like when you're traveling around. If you go with us to Mammoth, it, we get a lot of behold moments. Behold, there's a... We don't say behold, but we go, there's a bear over there. You know, you kind of shout it out. It's like, there's a bear in the trash can, and there's deer over there. Well, go check it out. Behold the deer. Or in my case, behold the trout. Behold the scratches on my knees from the mountain bike crash. When you say behold, you're pointing to something that's visible. Behold! You can see it. It's worth fixing your gaze on it. Behold. Behold Jesus. Behold the only King of Heaven. Behold Him coming in the clouds. Can you imagine... After the tribulation and Jesus parts the clouds and he comes back to this earth. This is not the only behold found in scripture, but it's going to be the the last one ultimately. When we read this book, it is very, very, very clear that the second coming is extremely important to Jesus. Because he's going to set everything right. The world's going to come unglued. Once the church is raptured out, once we're gone, you you think ISIS is bad. You think that the problems that we have in the world financially right now are bad. You think there's a bunch of goofy governments on the planet. You think Kim Jong-un is, is a nutcase. He will be nothing compared to the Antichrist. You, you couldn't even mention them in the same breath. Those people typify some of the things that the Antichrist will do. But one day, Jesus is going to say, enough. And he's coming back. Very, very important that you recognize that. Behold, there are going to be two distinct comings. And the first one, very important for you to understand this. That at that first coming, he's not going to make it all the way back to earth. He's coming for the church. And we are going to meet him in the air, is what your Bible says. He's not coming back here to this earth to get us. We are going there once he calls us up. When he sounds that trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 paints that same picture. We're going to be caught up. The word rapture is not in the Bible, by the way, so don't worry about finding it there. It comes from a Latin word. It means harpazo. It's, it's caught up by force, snatched away. In other words, you don't have anything to do with it. You're going to be wandering around the field, and boop, you're gone. And you're, you're going to be sitting there at a mill, and zip, you're out of here. To you, it's going to be instantaneous. 
He will come, but he will only come to the edge of, of what we call the, maybe the stratosphere. I don't know where he's going to stop at, but it's not going to be back here. The second coming, he is literally going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives. So there are two future comings. One for the church and one with the church, his saints. Because when he comes back, we're coming with him. Hallelujah. So the second coming is important because it's going to be preceded by the rapture of the church. So he's coming for us and then coming with us so that his people can be saved. Romans chapter 11 is very clear. One day all Israel will be saved. That's surely not true today. But Jesus is going to make sure it happens because he's faithful and he is true and he is yes and he is amen. Zephaniah chapter 12 says, And I will pour, pour out upon the house of David, there in verse 10, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. The spirit of grace is salvation, by the way. Because if you have the spirit of the grace of God, you are saved. And supplication, that means that your prayers have been heard. And then they will look upon him whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve him as one who grieves for a firstborn. One day Israel's going to wake up. Right now they haven't woke up. They're still in the stupor. They're still in the sleep. That's what Romans says. That's what Paul said. He was a Jew, by the way. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He says, my people are asleep. Blindness in part has come upon Israel until, he said, the times of the Gentiles are complete. That will happen during the tribulation. They're going to get the picture, and they're going to look, and they're going to know it's him. It's Jesus. We killed him. We pierced him. But the good news is he's coming back for him. He's not coming back angry at Israel. He's coming back to see that all Israel is saved. He's going to come back angry at the world and its sin. And those who have opposed him and persecuted the nation Israel. Again, that's why it's so important that we as Americans stand for Israel forever. As long as we have breath on this earth, to be an enemy of Israel is to be an enemy of God. Period. That's the end of the conversation as far as the Christian is concerned. Irregardless of where you may think about their political bent or any other thing, you're either for God or against God. And if you're against Israel, you are against God. They are his people. Period. May not like that? That's what Scripture says. They're going to mourn. They're going to wail. They're going to cry out. And notice it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn him. Everybody's going to get the picture when he comes back. There isn't going to be any possibility that you're not going to know who Jesus is. See, right now people explain away Jesus as the only way of salvation because they don't like what he stands for. But when he comes back to this earth... There are going to be zero options. You will either be destroyed in the battle of Armageddon or saved, one of the two. There's going to be two types of people on the earth. Those who are saved and those who are damned. And the ones that are damned are in big trouble when Jesus comes back. And notice how he wraps this up. It's a tremendous 
pivotal point in history. And he simply says, Jesus, for I am the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. The first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's what Alpha and Omega is. He is the A to Z of all things about God and salvation and mankind and time and creation. You name it. He is the source of it and he is the completion of it. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. There isn't, there's not an alternate way. He's the beginning, he's the end. In essence, this is God's signature. This is Jesus' signature on this book. He says, it's me. He's just explained what he's done. He's just explained who he is. And now he says, this is me. This is my signature because there's only one Alpha and Omega. Amen? Next time you have a Jehovah's Witness come up, how many Alpha and Omegas are there? Ask them that. Because from their view, God the Father alone is Alpha and Omega. And here Jesus the Son says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That makes him God. Notice what else he says. The beginning and the end. How does your Bible start? In the beginning, God. So who was there? Jesus. Who was, who is, excuse me, is now, who was, past tense, and who is to come. And then it goes on, if, you, if, the, if you're mistaken in any way, shape, or form, the Almighty. Just in case you don't get it. So in this signatory line, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. I always was, I am right now, and I always will be. And oh, by the way, I am also Almighty God. The word translated there is actually Lord God, Jehovah. It basically means all that God is. Jesus is. And he says it himself. It's a title for the Christ. The Alpha is the title of Jesus who is the Christ. It affirms his deity. He's absolutely God. There, isn't, there wasn't one before him. Notice, he was the beginning. Nobody before Christ. There won't be anybody after Christ. That's, you know what the end of the book says, right? Cursed is he who adds to or subtracts from the words of this, this revelation, this book. You know why it says that? Because there ain't nobody after him. That's why when a Mormon tells you that they have another revelation of Jesus Christ, you can tell them, no, you don't. Because there's only one. He put his signature on the book of Revelation. It came from him. So whatever you think didn't come from him. Because he already said, I'm the only one. And he signed off. He said, this is me. He's the absolute God. Nothing transcends him. And we use those big words like transcendence. But it simply means that there's nothing before, nothing after, and nothing supersedes, nothing is greater than, nothing is more powerful. He is completely alone in the entire universe as him. The God of hosts. When the Hebrews used Lord God, it simply means the all-powerful one. In your Bible, in the Hebrew, often one of the names for God is El Shaddai. And it means hero God. 
It means the absolute authoritarian God. It's the God who cannot be defeated. It's like super God, if you will. If there could be like a God action figure, I'm not being blasphemous here, if there were a God action figure, the God action figure would be the top of all the action figures. His powers would be greater than all of the rest of the guys. He would be like Megatron on steroids, if you're a Transformers person. There wouldn't be one who'd have more powers than him. You know how superheroes always have their powers? You know, it's just like, well, Superman can do this, but he always had his kryptonite. There is no kryptonite for Jesus. He has no weakness. He is all-powerful, almighty. He is the one whom Amos chapter 4, verse 13 says, forms the mountains, creates the wind, declares man in what he is, he is thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen anybody creating mountains. We've made some pretty big holes. You go out to Nevada, you can find some big holes that we've made with atomic weapons. But we never have created mountains. We've made a few mountains of trash. We've got some piles of dirt. But real mountains? Mm -mm. And when we do make stuff like that, it doesn't look like his. You ever notice that? Everything that he does, he does with excellency and with uniqueness. That's why, you know, we have a little kind of little water feature in front of our house. You know, I've lived, I've spent a lot of time in the the eastern high Sierra. I've hiked every inch of it. There is not a single trail system in the entire Sierra Nevada that I have not hiked. Not one. And I've looked at every little stream and creek and wandered up canyons all over the whole range. So I kind of think I know what a stream looks like. It is the craziest thing. I cannot replicate what God does. I pile up my rocks and I get water to flow over them. It's just, well, that stinks. And God doesn't even have to work at those things. They just happen because of his creative abilities. You see the sunset today? Try and paint one of those puppies. It ain't happening. Y'all ain't good at that. You look out there and go, God, you do that every day differently. He's almighty. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God the Father in majesty. Because there's none like him. He alone is the faithful witness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time tonight in your word. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would just simply honor you for who you are. God, help us to to find you uh, real in our lives in the way that you truly are. Lord, it's it's why Romans chapter 1 is such a beautiful picture of the way the world works. Lord, they're worshiping trees and worshiping rocks and worshiping whales and seals and sea otters and all these things, Lord. And we just want to worship you because you're worthy and you alone are worthy. And so, Lord, to these things, we say yes and amen. We bless you. We honor you, Lord. We give you glory. We praise your name. It's in Christ's precious name we speak these things. And all God's people said,
Amen.